Fishing like a local isn't just about catching fish. It's about connecting with the environment and the people who call it home. It's about hearing the stories and traditions that have been passed down for generations and sharing unforgettable moments with the people you meet along the way. Fishing like a local is having an experience that stays with you forever. And with Fishing Booker, you can experience it too, no matter where you are. Discover your next adventure on Fishing Booker. At Midway USA, we know the AR-15 is one of the most popular rifles in modern American history. Known for its modularity and widespread use, it's often considered essential to any gun collection. The essential things you need to run an AR-15 are usually always in stock during shortages, things like magazines and 5.56 ammo. Whether you're looking to buy a new AR-15 or buy parts for your modern sporting rifle, log on and for just about everything for the outdoors, shop MidwayUSA.com. It started where it was Saturdays and Sundays, and then it turned into Saturday, Sundays, and one day during the week. And then it turned into Saturday, Sundays, and two days during the week. And that's when my dad and I had a falling out. And, you know, I must also mention that a lot of times that second day, I was going fishing on my own because I started loving it so much. And he kind of caught on and he said, well, look, you either fish or you cut bait. And I said, you know what, Dad, I'm going fishing. And I left. And at that moment, he wasn't very happy of my uh, situation or, 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 or my decision is what I should be saying. But I'll tell you what, today, my dad is my biggest fan. My dad is uh, 85 years old today, and we talk daily. And he's my biggest fan today. He really is. Hey, this is Captain Joe Gonzalez, and this is the Tom Rowland Podcast. Oftentimes you hear about someone in, the, in your own industry, in my industry, that's in the fishing industry, but in your own industry, that may be whatever, whatever it is that you make your living doing. I'm sure that there are legends in that particular field. In the fishing industry, there are plenty of legends. And this one person is someone that I have heard about for a long time. When I first started guiding, this guy was already well established and I heard many things about this gentleman. All good. Always wanted to meet him. Never have. This is one of the few people so far that I'm doing a podcast with that I had just never met in person, but I certainly felt as though I knew him because I had heard so many good things about him and I was not disappointed. And I don't think you're going to be either. So stand by for my great conversation with my new friend, Captain Joe Gonzalez of Biscayne Bay. Midway USA brand product designers have one straightforward goal. Develop high-quality, technically sound products and deliver them to customers at reasonable prices. If you are immersed in the shooting sports industry and pay close attention to every single detail, you know our products are built right and stand up to everyday use. Who has shooting mats and range bag systems to hunting clothing and just about everything for the outdoors? Log on and shop 24-7 with super-fast shipping. MidwayUSA.com <laughs> All right, we're live. We're live with a legend, Captain Joe Gonzalez, Miami, 
sitting in your house. Where where are we right now? Because I don't know Miami. Well, Tom, we're right in old Miami. Um, we're just east. I'm sorry, just west of downtown Miami, where Miami pretty much originated once people started to immigrate here. Prior to uh, this being a populated area, it was a little bit um, east of here, right near the river is where civilization kind of started in the Miami area. And so where did you grow up? I grew up right here in Miami. I was born and raised in Miami. And in this area? like right? I actually a little bit further west from here, but uh, I've been in this little Havana area for, oh, about 32 years now. I met my lovely wife and kind of moved into the area. Uh, we bought this house and so it goes that, you know, just right on. Made a life right here. Yeah. So you're, uh, when you started, um, when you were growing up here, did you fish always? I did. I did. I actually, um, my dad always had time to take me fishing. I, um, my dad is still alive and I spent a lot of time in the Key Largo area, spent some time, uh, Venetian shores in the Isla Morada area. Mm -hmm. We did a lot of uh, going back and forth to Bimini, he always had boats. And, you know, I remember as a kid going to Bimini, uh, probably in the uh, late 60s, early 70s, and it wasn't uncommon to um, daily at the big game fishing club to see these big tuna come in. Mm. They used to troll for those big bluefin, tuna. Bluefin, right? Blue, big bluefin, that's right. correct, And which they don't have that anymore. And all of that kind of, uh, I guess, impressed me as a kid, and I took a passion for, uh, for fishing. And as a matter of fact, I remember when they'd bring in those bluefin tuna, they'd bring them in, and the indigenous people from the town would come out with these big butcher knives. They'd chunk them out, and they'd give it away. They'd give away like a big slab. And I, I remember fishing at the dock there off my dad's boat or walking around the dock and using shrimp and using pilchards and things like that. And one day they gave us the big chunk of tuna, <laughs> went ahead and took tuna. And I what I did was I cut it into small pieces, started fishing with the tuna on the hook and it outfished everything like five to one. <laughs> and what happens is that after they cut those tuna, they would throw the carcasses over and the mangrove snapper would, I guess they were raised on the bluefin tuna and they loved that. Wow. And, and, and let's think about what a bluefin tuna is worth today. I know you were fishing with a hundred dollar piece of bait. <laughs> <laughs> right? Nice piece of sashimi. That's you correct. Know, the first time I ever heard that story about the bluefin in the Bahamas do you know Tom Pierce? He's an old-time Key West guy. I know the name. I know um, the name. He's uh, He's been doing it for a long time. And he's done about everything you can do in the fishing industry. Like yourself, he's been down in the Bahamas, and he was down there. I don't know if it was when he was a kid or just when he was a young man. But he said that they would have those tournaments like that, and they would bring the bluefin in. They would hang them up, weigh them, and then they would tie them all by the tail, all of the fish together by the tail, and then drag them out and sink them, those bluefin tuna. Like yeah. nobody thought that they were 
that they were worth anything. That's correct. And they kind of outfished that. As a matter of fact, they are starting to fish for them now some. They're trying to kind of – some of them come through still. But that had to be pretty cool uh, running up in front of a school of bluefin tuna, trying to put your bait out in front of them and watching a take that way. Right. I mean, yeah, (laughs) that would be be pretty awesome. I mean, that is – that is probably the greatest fish in the ocean. I mean, really, like you're you're talking about an 800 pound bluefin tuna, the things the size of a car. Yeah, we and don't. We, they don't come through there anymore like they used to. I know they catch them up north and they catch them, you know, in the northeast and stuff. But we don't see those on the Bahamian Bank much, or they don't anyway. I right. shouldn't say we. Right. <laughs> there is no I in we. Yeah. So your time <laughs> is mostly is mostly spent in Biscayne Bay. Primarily Biscayne Bay. I. Uh, I did when I started. Um, I started Tom in '87, and I did it part time from '87 to '91. Um, and in '91, I went ahead and took the plunge and started doing it full time. So I, I'm always interested in that. I mean, we even were talking before the podcast started about different. You know, it's always taking the plunge. Like you started in eight, 1987, and so what happens to where you kind of decide? I think that I can I'll tell do you this. exactly how it happened. That's a great question. I always talk about that with with others. Um, I was working for dad and uh, my dad's in the uh, lighting industry and he was back then primarily manufacturing and now it's become everything gets done overseas. But anyway, I was working for dad, running the shipping department and doing some purchasing and stuff. And I was there with him for, oh, about eight years. And uh, I took a passion for fishing and the fly fishing here in the Bay uh, and some in the Keys. We did some in Key Largo. Um some in, in the Bahamas. I did some bone fishing in the Bahamas as well. But um, it started where it was weekends, Saturdays and Sundays. And back then there was, oh, probably about five guides, which I'll mention <laughs> later if you want, yeah. out of, out of Cranon Marina here out of Key Biscayne. But uh, it started where it was Saturdays and Sundays. And then it turned into Saturday, Sundays, and one day during the week. And then it turned into Saturday, Sundays, and two days during the week, and that's when my dad and I had a falling out. And, you know, I must also mention that a lot of times that second day, I was going fishing on my own because I started loving it so much. And he kind of caught on and he said, well, look, you either fish or you cut bait. And I said, you know what, dad, I'm going fishing. And I left. And at that moment, he wasn't very happy of my uh, situation or, 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 or my decision is what I should be saying. But I'll tell you what, today, my dad is my biggest fan. My dad is uh, 85 years old today and we talk daily and he's my biggest fan today. That's, he that's really nice is. to know. So what was hit? What was the other alternative? I mean, he wasn't happy with you going and, well, and being a fisherman. Me, he wanted me to stay in the business, in the family business. And, you know, back then my dad and I, I was young and we didn't see eye to eye. I had, I have two other brothers, which were in the business as well. And, you know, when you bring a lot of people into a family business, a lot of issues arise. And uh, I figured out quickly that that's not the route I wanted to take. I wanted to be my own person and have my independence and allowed me to uh, live into a lifestyle that I 
always wanted to have. I, you know, as a child or as a kid, I never really wanted to have a nine to five. My my dream was to go to the Keys, buy a motel, and run a motel, and <laughs> hang out in shorts and flip flops, which never really happened. But that was that was my my dream, you know. And and that that materialized into into a fishing career. That's correct. So That's correct. when you first are starting in nineteen eighty seven, did you know that shallow water fishing is what you wanted to do? Oh yeah, or? I was already shallow water fishing, and yeah. you know the first trip I ever had uh, was a guy called. <laughs> Frank Mathers. And Frank Mathers was a scientist from Woods Hole, Massachusetts. Okay. And he's the first guy to ever tag fish. And it just so happens that the fish he was tagging were bluefin tuna. <laughs> um, Frank passed away. But uh, the guy who gave me that trip was a guy called John Donnell. I don't know if you know John. I don't know him personally, okay. but I do know well, certainly know owned, of him. John owned a shop here and uh, up here in Fort Lauderdale. He owned it with another fella called Kenny uh, Colette. And um, John actually gave me my first fly line. And John knew that I fished on the bridges around Julia Tuttle, 79th Street Causeway, uh, the MacArthur. And he used to do a lot of night fishing for snook and tarpon. And, uh, you know, back then, which is not something that we see too much. We, well, that's kind of a dying thing. There was a lot of fishing clubs back then. Mm-hmm. There was yeah. the Rod and Reel Club, Tropical Anglers, South Florida Anglers. And there was a big, uh, what's the word, following for um, – gold badge or red badge. You right, had to right, right. earn your badges. Some sort of master angler or master, badge. Yeah. That's correct. And and one of the requirements for the Rod and Reel Club was having a uh, tarpon on what they called fly light. So the tarpon had to be over 24 inches and you couldn't use but 12 pound bite tippet. Huh. You couldn't bite, use a, a bite tippet. It had to be straight 12. Wow. So the way to do it was to fish for 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 smaller tarpon which we had plenty of on the bridges right off the lights feeding on shrimp and since John knew that that's that was what I was doing he hooked me up with Frank Mathers I took Frank Mathers up, and at that time Frank Mathers was in his 70s already mid 70s or so and I already I had a flats boat and what we would do is we'd go out we'd climb on the pilings <laughs> Tie the boat up, climb. I'd have Frank climb on the pilings, and we'd fish the shadow lines. <laughs> He's I'm seventy. At climb seven, up there. Th- that's correct. At seventy. <laughs> well, it wasn't that difficult. I mean, the pilings weren't that high, but you know, you, you figure you have the piling, and there's like a slab. So we'd climb the slabs, and you see the tarpon cruising up and down the shadow line, and you'd pitch at them. You know, I never was able to get Frank his tarpon. Oh, I never. I don't know if he ever got it. I never. He fished with me later through the years and stuff, but. Uh, I'll tell you what, that old man had a dirty mouth. <laughs> he really did. We'd lose a fish and he'd start cursing and stuff like that. But but it, it, it brings me back to when I started. And I think back then it was like a half day trip. And I think it was 125 bucks, 150 bucks or something like yeah. that, you know, for, for, for a four hour <laughs> night trip. But it was a start for me. And that's how I started little by slowly. And then, um, you know, when I started bone fishing out here, out of Cranon, there was five guys. There was Bill Curtis, there was Frank Aristo, there was Bob Branham, there was Kenny Collette, and there was another guy called Jerry Gehring. And then there were other guys, but those were kind of the five guys that would do it daily. And little by little, uh, 
they kind of took a liking to me. And little by little, I started getting some of their overflow. And, you know, I kind of started. And one of the things, uh, Frank passed away, actually. And so did Bill. Bob is still around. I haven't heard of Jerry Gary. And Kenny passed away as well. It's really? a shame. I didn't know that. Yeah, Kenny passed away, oh, maybe about five years, six I, years, I maybe a little that. more than that. Yeah. But anyway, I remember that they'd leave at 7.30 in the morning. And by 3.30 in the afternoon, Everybody was back. It was sort of a, you know, and then the shop steward was Frank Caristo. And I'd stay an extra 45 minutes, an hour. And I remember Frank getting on my case about staying later than everyone else. But you know, what happens is that when you're young like that, you're not just out there for the client. You're yeah. wanting to learn and you're wanting to, because I'm passionate. I'm still passionate about what I do. And I want to learn as much as I can. So, you know, I, they, they'd give me a hard time about that, but it was funny. That's just food for thought, you know? Yeah. Well, that's, uh, I think at any time you're working in a marina setting, even, even today, like, you know, don't, don't, don't rock the boat. Like you don't need to be going, staying out too long. You don't need to be going too early. You know, you know, I see that in a lot of different marina situations. I guess it, you know, the trailer guides are a little different. Like you're a little more on your own program, but you know, you're, the one guy's gone and you're in a party of of a bunch of people. Right, I understand. You can't I, yeah. you can't be bringing back, you know, somebody back 2 hours late. No, you're right. You're right. I see that. I understand. I understand. Yeah. And we, we get some of that here. We get some of that. But uh, yeah, I, I, I'm still passionate about about the fishing. And, um, you know, day in, day out, I try to what they call break the code, Tom. You know what I mean by breaking the code? Well, I want to hear. Okay. I think I do, but well, I'm going to test you. How's okay. that? I'm gonna, right. I know this is your podcast, yeah, but I'm going to test, test, test you. And people make fun of me when I do this. And, and we're going to talk about because I know this is very interesting to me. And this is what I use day in, day out. Okay. Fish have five major purposes in life. Five. Can you help me name them, Tom? Eat. Feeding. Evade predation. Avoid predation. That's the avoiding predation yeah. topic, right? Uh, reproduce. Spawning. That's correct. Um, poop. Well, that's <laughs> kind of, they're going to poop regardless. Yeah. They're, yeah. Yeah. They have to, I guess in avoiding predation, they have to, that would also be schooling and migrating and moving in order to avoid predation. But well, maybe- that's part, of, you know, a lot of these things, there's five major points. And a lot of these things that you're going to comment on are going to be a derivative of those five. Right. So you have feeding, spawning, avoiding predation. Tom, what happens when it gets too cold? What happens when it gets too hot? Mm -hmm. They adjust to conditions. I used to say acclimate to conditions, but right. no, they adjust to conditions. Right, right. Okay. Now, um, a lot of these collaborate with each other also. So feeding, spawning, avoiding predation, adjusting to conditions, and fish also do something else. Mm. What happens when you're out fishing? Um, and you go red fishing and you know you're in the redfish because you're polling and you're blowing them out. Right. And you're blowing. Them. What do you think those fish are doing? They have to rest. They're resting. Fish rest. All fish rest. Yeah. Whether you're a pelagic or you're a coastal fish, an inshore fish, fish rest. When tarpon are laid up, 
They're, They're kind of resting. Yeah. It doesn't mean that you can't get what we call a reaction bite if you make the right presentation. You find a school of bonefish sometimes resting. I'm sure you've seen permit resting. I'm sure you've seen bone. Now, a lot of times here in the Bay, I'll see bonefish resting in places where they are avoiding predation at the same time. Right. They're sitting on these types of bottoms that have sea fans, basket sponges, mm-hmm. those gorgonian types sea fans and stuff and the reason they sit on those spots is that if a shark comes in on them they can they have obstacles easy in and outs to get out of right you know and a lot of times when they're resting in these places they're also they've adjusted to they're they're sitting there and instead of exerting too much energy they rather sit and wait until the conditions are proper for right. them to feel. Yeah, like the t- for the tide to start moving the way that they need it or whatever. Right, right. Yeah. Now, if there's a thermal drop, sometimes they'll sit in these places or they'll they'll move off a little bit, but they won't exert too much. They, it's not one of those days where they're moving from point A to point B right. to feed and stuff like that. And they I'm just sure if huddle you, up. you can, yeah, exactly, they're huddled up. You can relate to that. Now, we had the discussion the other days and we were talking about tuna a little while ago. How would tuna rest? I mean, you know what I'm saying? Yeah. I guess they would swim into the current or pelagics. Because when you're out there and you're dolphin fishing or you're flying a kite for sailfish and the bite's not on, not on, do you think it's that the fish that you're not in the fish or you know, could it be that the fish are in the area, but they're not feeding? That's a very good possibility. Sure. Yeah, right? absolutely. Yes. And, and the same is applicable with dolphin. But now we had a discussion, had a discussion with a friend of mine on the boat the other days who does a lot of offshore fishing, and we were trying to figure out tuna, because tuna constantly have to be moving, right? Mm-hmm. Well, they they constantly need to be swimming. Sw- right. They don't and- necessarily need to be moving well, okay, from so- point A to point B. And the re- what I'm saying about that is like we were sword fishing recently, and I'm looking at the at the GPS, and we are it, the boat is in gear. Right. And we basically are almost throwing a wake, but the Gulf Stream is so strong right. that we're actually going fast like this. But you're not but covering, we're going you're not this co- way. You're not covering right? it. We're yeah. actually yeah. moving backwards. Yeah. And you get somebody there that has never seen that before. And you're like, looks like we're going pretty fast. Right. And they're, they're like, yeah, I mean, we're going like six miles an hour. Yeah, but there's an eight but, knot current. But yeah, but look, you're going actually going backwards. Yeah, so that yeah. I would say that because the tuna could maybe just be swimming there and they're sliding backwards, but they're barely they're swimming bl- enough to get exactly to get right. to have oxygen coming in through mm-hmm. their through. Yep. Yeah. Yep. Yeah. That's interesting. So do you base all of your decisions on those five factors? Well, you know, that's a great question because a lot of times I do and you know in the bay here, and I use these five factors a lot, Tom, in the wintertime now. When it gets cold here in the bay, you know, the bone fishing here in Biscayne Bay, unlike many other parts up and down the Keys or in the Bahamas, we have pretty good, and it's not the boast about the bay or anything like that, but our wintertime bone fishing for some reason has always been really, really good. There's, I don't know if it's because the Gulf Stream is close or what it is, but in the wintertime, I love bone fishing in the wintertime here because mm. if it gets really cold, it gets easier for me to find them because it takes a lot of the guesswork out. What it does is I know where they're not going to be. Mm-hmm. Now I'm going to go to places where they should be. 
You know, yeah. and 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 it's the same thing with you when you're tarpon fishing, when you're tarpon fishing in the Gulf, or if you're in Florida Bay. You know, a lot of time as a guide, you know what the fish are going to do before even the fish know what yeah. they're going to do. Does, I, does that make sense? Yeah, well, I mean, we have the ability to look at electronic. Uh, weather reports, radar. You can see that it's there's a front coming in. You can see that the temperature is about to drop 10, 12 degrees. You know that they're going to be here today, but there is no chance they're going to be here tomorrow. And where will they be? You know, so you kind of do. I don't know if we know it before the fish because I t- yeah, kind of feel like. Yeah, you know what I'm talking yeah, about. Yeah, you get right. that sixth sense. Yeah. And, and that's what I'm talking about, breaking the code. Mm-hmm. I love breaking the code daily. Um, when I break the code, I feel as I've been successful, even if we don't catch any, right? at least I've broken the code. And I think, but you know, what's funny, Tom, is that they, they can fool you, but <laughs> you, you know what I'm saying? Yeah. I mean, from one day to the next, you think you've got it down packed and they come around and they're not there. Okay. So where are they? Where do they go? You know, and there are days when fish just don't move. There's times when, you know, they feed at night. They don't come in shore. They don't come in. You know, it used to be a lot easier. Hmm. I think there used to be more fish. Not that there's not fish anymore. But you will always talk about how it used to be. Right. It used to be easier for bonefish here in the Bay. The permit fishing, well, it kind of, the permit fishing is a seasonal thing. So a lot of times... That fishery is a cyclical. It goes in cycles, mm-hmm. just as in tarpon, mm-hmm. right? You can have a really good permit yes. year. But bonefish, guess you can have cycles. But for the most part, bonefish really don't migrate really long distances from what studies have shown. Right. Now, you're, you're, um, that, that, kind of um, information from those studies, from tagging and other studies, has become more available in the last you know, a few years or whatever. Absolutely. How much have you learned from from tagging and I the was, studies? I was very instrumental in helping a guy called Jerry Alt, Dr. Yeah. Jerry Alt. Uh, and this was before Bonefish Tarpon Trust really got big. Um, uh, you, he was, Jerry was University of Miami. And we did a lot of bonefish st- acoustic telemetry. We did tagging. and But what we've learned, what we learned is that, the average size bonefish here in the bay was 23 inches to the fork. Okay. I mean, a 23-inch bonefish is probably, I'm going to say, four and a half, five pounds, depending on girth. But that was the cookie-cutter size fish. And I'm going to say today, it probably remains right around there, maybe a little bit less, because we did lose a lot of fish. Um, we also learned that smaller fish as far as bonefish, are very loyal to their spots. Hmm. They come back to the same spots day in, day out. Now, for somebody that doesn't know what this is, uh, explain acoustic telemetry studies. Well, acoustic telemetry, what it is, is they'll uh, be out in the field, you catch a fish, and they'll take that fish and they will put them in a tank and sedate the fish. They'll take the fish, turn them upside down, and they make an incision right behind his, I guess what I'm trying to think, his midsection, Mm -hmm. okay? So they make an incision, and they put a transmitter about the size of a double A battery, I'm sorry, triple A battery. They insert it, 
they sew the fish up and then they put like a antibiotic on it. They turn the fish over, lay them in that in, in another tank, let them recuperate. And 15 minutes, 20 minutes later, the fish is released and on his way. Now, you know, Tom, I would assume that through the years, as we did some of that, there had to be some type of mortality mm. rate, okay? But there was also a good of information gathered. And after they put that transmitter on the fish, they have these, they put these fences out. So you figure they put uh, a fence. When I mean by a fence, they put a receiver in one spot here off a point, a hundred yards out, they put another one, another hundred yards out, they put another one. Now you move down the lateral line a little further, the longitude line, and you put another fence. So this way they can detect when the fish comes back to the same area. Mm -hmm. And that's what they found is that smaller fish are much loyal to spots than bigger fish. Bigger fish tend, and I mean, it's common sense. Bigger fish are going to make longer movements day in, day out. But it's really neat that what I have come to figure out is that basic spots are basic spots, Mm -hmm. Tom. If basic spots aren't working, usually fancy's not going to work either. <laughs> I mean, you yeah, tell me, yeah. what do you think? No, I mean, you know, you know, I, I agree with you. Like on a day where, where everything is happening, the little fish spots, the basic spots, they ought to be happening. The big fish spots ought to be happening. The spots where you rarely see them, that's happening too. But on the tough days, there are often only certain spots that the are going to, yeah, the fancy like, stuff, yeah, like yeah. the places where you see that's where the world record was caught once. And I've been there a whole bunch of times and I've only seen three fish there ever. And they've always been really big, but it's, I mean, is it a good spot? Well, the world record was caught there, but doesn't necessarily that's mean fancy. It's, it, right. It doesn't right. necessarily mean it's a day in, day out. Exactly. You know, and, and that's what happens is that, there's so many of us fishing today, not just professionals, but anglers as well. And there's only so many spots, Tom. When you're hammering a spot day in, day out, as you know, the fish get smart. And then we condition them. We condition them to get smarter. We condition them to come in when it's nighttime or at dusk, or they try to avoid predation mm-hmm. because we're predation as well. Don't you agree? Sure. Absolutely. You 100%. Know? Yeah, even if they don't associate you with predation, um, like getting caught, you're a shadow. You're you're a you're boat. A stain. That's, you're that's something. A, you, you know, a, like a, a bird is is predation. Even if they don't ever get hit by a bird, they have like that's that's wired into their DNA. Watch out for things above. That's you know, right. a, that's a right. fly line. Uh, uh, it's all the same. That's a bird to them. That's something that is going to eat them from above. And I don't ever think that they think, oh, that's a fisherman. Like, that's just something that's wired into them. That yep, that they need to avoid. Watch out to- for that. Now, here's one thing that I've seen through the years, Tom, and I'm assuming you've seen it as well if you're guiding, that sharks are kind of the barometer of what's going on or what's not going on. Mm-hmm. 
Don't you agree? Yeah. Well, I mean, I've always I always think, you know, action brings more action. I like I like that offshore, I like that inshore. I like to pull into a spot and there's and life. See life. Yep. There is life. Yep. There's yep. rays. Yep. There are box fish. There are bonnet sharks. There's lemon That's sharks. Correct. There's That's everything. Correct. Let me ask you, have you ever noticed a correlation between turtles and permit? Yes, absolutely. Absolutely. hundred percent. Absolutely. Yeah. I mean a hundred percent. Yes, sir. Yes, sir. Yeah. Yes, and, sir. And also, you know, like in the Marquesas. Which is an area that's rich in permit, both offshore and inshore. Uh, if you're running out there in the deeper water, you see these turtle turds, which look like a human poop in the water, and it's floating, floating yes. on the surface. And you see them like all over, and and I, I just find that's interesting because for years I was like. What is this? These guys off these shrimp boats, or what is going on out and it's here? It's a turtle turd. Yeah, you know, I'm and I kept, start I kept looking asking, for turtle turds. Tom. Yeah, well, it yeah. looks like. Um, I mean, it's obviously from a big turtle because it looks like a full-grown person poop. And I kept asking people, "What? What is that? Is that what I think it is? Is that some kind of poop?" And my friend that was a commercial fisherman, and he he was just he did all kinds of commercial fishing, and he said, "Yeah, that's turtles." Hundred percent. That's so cool. And That's and a, that those areas where I've seen the hold, most turtles hold, hold perms have the most permit. That's and and you know, but then on the inshore side, you're not seeing as many of those large turtles as you are offshore. Yeah, offshore. But you know, another thing that I notice as a fishing guide is a lot of times there's islands. We have the raggeds out here, and we have Elliot, and there's Adams Key, and there's there are places where nature works together, Tom. I'll see places where I'll go and they're places that are lined up with comrades. Mm. They may have heron. So there's bird life. And as soon, and I know there's fish in that area because I fish these spots quite often. And it's as if the birds, when you pull in and you start pulling, to, the birds take off. They're sending out a signal. Mm-hmm. You know, I don't know if it's, if it's, if they do it deliberately, but when the bird jumps, fish know that something's going on. Yeah. You know, I mean, that's how nature works together that, that the birds can alarm that sure. some, the fish that someone's coming. Sure. I always liked, you know, in, in a certain situation of like pulling for laid up tarpon or whatever, and you're pulling in there. And there's a tarpon laying there. You make a cast at it, and it does one of these numbers where it just kind of turns away from you and is not interested at all, and it just doesn't want to be bothered. Well, you try to pull around that fish and make the right shot, and again, it just kind of does the same thing again. And so there's the tendency to just keep casting at that thing until that tarpon takes off. And then you get the domino effect. And then now you've allowed that fish to to contaminate all of the fish in front of them by sending off the signal of, that's right. well, I was a little bit uncomfortable before and that's why I was turning and maybe they can sense that too, but now it's a full on run for your life. Yep. And so yep. every other fish well, is you like, get the domino what's going effect. on? That's right. what I call the domino exactly. effect, right? Yep. Yeah. Yep. And, and it takes a lot of discipline to, you know, especially on the client end when you've been looking for fish for three hours and you haven't found one. Now you get into an area where there are some. And they make the cast and it's like, okay, well, that one's done. I know you don't 
do this every day, but that fish is done. Yep. Let's yep. keep moving. And I'm just going to pull quietly around this fish and leave it leave sitting him there. Leave alone. Yeah. Right. Yep. So you don't that takes booger, a lot of discipline. So you don't booger the area. Exactly. Right. I know. I got exactly. you. I got you. <laughs> but that I is, you know, I, I mean, and I think that that's, um, you know, that goes into, into the way that you approach the spot and it goes into the, the way that you, you pull the spot and how loud you're being and everything. I think it all has an effect on what you're trying to do and how effective you are. And some people that I've had on this podcast believe, you know, in making sure that the props out of the water, because, you know, it's, it's rotating and shining and flashing and doing all this stuff. And, and they absolutely, the prop has to be completely out of the water because, you know, I mean, it would, it's like a mirror. It is. You know? It is. That's kind of a, it is not, not natural thing, but uh, you know, I mean, I think, I think it's, I've always kind of thought that the success in fishing and in fishing tournaments or something like that, the people that are winning and doing really well consistently aren't necessarily doing one thing that is it's a combination. It's a combination yeah. of things. Isn't it's a it? whole yeah. bunch of one percent yeah. that add up to uh, sometimes a 60 or 70 percent advantage because, you know, the hooks are perfect. The knots are perfect. They prepare to succeed. Right. They prepare to succeed. Right? How do you prepare to succeed? <laughs> Stumped you. <laughs> well, wait, no, no, wait a minute. Now I got to think about that. I got to think about, you know, Tom, it seems to me that when I rig up the night before and I prepare to succeed, I usually have a good day. I could take a rod that I fished today Maybe a little scuffed up, might have casted a few times, might have caught a fish or two, but that leader isn't real clean. You know, when mm-hmm. you go out in the morning and you get that first shot and you miss that first fish, and it could be just a little glaze on that leader that doesn't get you that first bite. And now you don't have the momentum you need to start the day off on the right track. I mean, it's kind of, it's as simple as that sometimes, you know? Uh, do you I've think always- that's, do you think that's the momentum comes from, from you sometimes as the guide? Like it's, it's your attitude. It's your. I think so, Tom. I yeah. think so. I think so. Don't you? Don't well, you? I, I do. I mean, I think that, I, I think that the guide, um, brings or the captain. A lot to the brink. Of course. Yeah. And, then, and, 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 and then like, you- if you get upset with somebody, it that took me a you know a, a, a while to understand really that you know as a young person as a young guide you're like you said before you are probably more excited about catching this fish than the customer so there might be the uh, might be the situation to where you get frustrated or you don't outwardly say something like that was really stupid what you just did I which know, some people might do that but maybe you don't even do that but maybe you just go quiet yep right yep and then there's this what is that doing for the for for the morale in the boat right whereas if maybe you just were like nah we'll get another one no problem that's and you how, change the subject right. and no matter how badly it makes you, you feel you keep moving on that's correct you know, that's what i try to do tom that's that's what i try to do although sometimes i can say no nah, that that wasn't good and, and because it depends on the individual also mm. you can usually tell if you can read a person by their body language or by their expression in their face or what they do, you can say, hey, listen, 
you screwed that one up. Next time, do this. Mm-hmm. And they'll accept it and take. And then there's other guys that get bent out of shape. So you get a feel for that. I'm sure as a fishing guide, you yeah. know I mean, what that's, I'm talking that's about. That's like, you know, that's the. I mean, that's, that's the juice. That's what you have to, that's the difference between somebody that stays in the business for a long time and somebody that doesn't is, you know, it's one thing to know where the fish are, but it's a whole other thing to be able to communicate with the clients. We are in the, I'm in the entertainment business and therapeutic business as well, (laughs) The therapeutic business. I am. There's more stories there. Yeah, there sure are. (laughs) You know, Tom, um, a lot of times, and I'm going to, I'm going to go elsewhere with this. I'm going to ask you another question. Okay. So we can go somewhere else. Fish have three ways of feeding, right? Mm-hmm. They fish. They You're feed. big into lists. Uh, what's that? <laughs> You're big into lists. Um, there's I'm, five I, things. I, I there's am, three I things. Am, okay. I, I don't want to because, interrupt you. <laughs> because it's all good, dude. But be, I test when people come on a boat with me, I like to teach them. Yes. And I want them to understand the whys or why nots. Okay. So fish feed three different ways. What are they? Feed in three different ways. Yes. Um, let's see. They're going to, yeah, I see. You. They're going to see it. They're going to smell it. Sight. Or they're going to feel it. Or feel. That's right. correct. Lateral lines. Now, I'll have guys a lot of times that aren't very experienced at fly fishing. And one of the things, you being a fly fishing guide, know that the trout set is something <laughs> that's a no-no. Right. Now, when fish feed. You know, the trout set is when you lift the rod, when you get a bite and you lift the rod and the now the flies moved 10, 15 feet out of the strike zone and you miss that strike. Yes. When fish feed, fish don't feel pain like you and I. They're cold-blooded animals. Fish are used to having shrimp, crabs, fin fish in their mouth. And when they come over and eat that fish or crab or shrimp or whatever, that shrimp and crab is poking and pinching, trying to get out of their mouth. Mm-hmm. How many times have you had a customer keep the fly in a str- and have a permit bite? Over and over and over oh, again. Three right. or four times. Yeah. I've had it happen to yeah. me. I'm, I'm terrible. I'm the best at missing <laughs> strikes that way because I don't get bow time. But, but what happens is if you strike and lift, that's out of the way. So- these are things that I try to educate and show people. When fish run, fish don't run because of the pain of the hook. They run because they're being restricted. Mm-hmm. You have a fish on and he starts hauling butt one way and you loosen the drag, he's not going to run as hard. Absolutely. 100% agree with and you. I'm sure when you permit fish sometimes you fish, if you fish near structure i do a lot of bait fishing for permit near yep. structure and stuff like that you get the bite you set the hook he starts running towards the area if you ease up or open the bale or open the bale now yes. you can start the engine go around whatever obstruction or now the minute he turns and he starts facing away from that obstacle that's when you put the heat on him because his natural instinct right. is now, to run yeah, in the exactly. opposite direction 100 agree Hundred percent agree. So all of these little things, I love teaching this stuff. And when it's applicable, I will yell at you if I have to <laughs> while it's going on. But after I yell at you in a nice way, I say, "Hey, listen, I'm sorry," and everything is good. You know? Yeah. But yeah. I do it because I'm still. If I didn't yell, eh, I lost the passion for the sport. 
You know, why are you laughing, man? I'm just laughing because I'm doing I, good. Am I, I, am I yeah. talking good stuff no, here? No, this is what? excellent. You're okay. doing great. Okay. Um, <laughs> I'm just laughing because, because I can tell. I, I mean, sometimes you're around somebody and you can tell why they're successful at whatever it is that they're doing. And in this business, a lot of what it takes to be successful is certainly time on the water. And it's certainly being interested in where the fish are. But it's as much about being passionate about what you're doing as as anything because that passion bleeds over into more exploring more rigging late at night more chart work more talking to people and trying to understand these things that neither one of you understands like why did they do this where do they go i don't know and it's just obvious that you you just have this infectious passion that is going to sometimes bleed over into maybe yelling at somebody a little bit like, but it's but it comes from a good you place. You know, my saying is, I'm yelling with you, not at you. That's what <laughs> I say. That go over. People, some people are cool with it, but I'll tell you what, I've had some guys that don't take it well. Yeah, you know, and I get it. And then I ease off. I say, hey, listen, I'm sorry. And as soon as another shot comes around, I yell at them again. You you know, and 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 so it goes. You know, and you know, it, it, with fishing guides, people either like you or they don't like you. And sometimes people that don't like you, they still come back, Tom. Yeah. <laughs> Do you, they? You, well, both, I mean, there not, are not, people not out there that person. are glutton for punishment. Yes, like, that's correct. They just that, That's right. They're, but it's also, there are people out there that, you know what? The, the thought of trying something new is not appealing either. Like- I don't, people I may don't, not like don't this like person. Change. They but, don't like change, yeah. right? Or, or getting corrected. Right. Or, so I'm listening. I may not like this person, but. The 1911 is one of the most iconic firearms in history. Designed by John Browning, the 1911 was the standard issue sidearm of the U.S. military from 1911 to 1985. While Colt produced the original, almost every major firearm company has produced its own version. It's wildly revered for its reliability, crisp trigger, and is still a favorite for all types of shooters. Whether you're looking to buy or build a 1911 and just about everything for guns, log on to MidwayUSA.com. Yeah. He's, we catch fish. We catch fish, and I'm learning. And he's teaching. And then what happens is he fishes with you a couple of times, goes out, gets a boat, and thinks he's going to do it on his own. Mm. <laughs> what do you go? Mm. Oh, well, I've just seen that happen a lot, too. And yeah, then, and, and then, then uh, that's an interesting relationship at that point. It is an interesting relationship, and I've seen it go both ways. I've seen them get very good, and I've also seen them sell the boat. Mm. Yeah. And I'm sure you've seen the same. Yeah. And I've also seen it go to where they get very good and they're not friendly with the person that brought them into the sport anymore. And I've also seen it to where that person that once was a client that now owns a boat is the best source of information for that guide. Like they're call, yes, they're sir. talking yes, every sir. night. Yeah, yeah, like yep. I found, you remember I, where yeah, you took right. me that one so, day in so, that tournament? Yeah, yeah they're there. And I'm not fishing tomorrow, so you go with your clients and just You're hammer right, them, whatever. You're right. Um, You're right. That's, and that's a, that's the difference between kind of like how you react to that situation. Do you react to it as like, man, if you're going to have a boat, I can't talk to you anymore. Like, that's not cool. Which, I mean, that was a client. That was money. I know. That was your- and, and that's, I don't do that, Tom. I'm easy that way. Uh, what I might not do is take on the A spots. <laughs> right. you, you understand? Right. If I'm aware, if I know, but sometimes you don't know and you're taking them to A spots and then you find out later that they're getting a boat. But you know, I've come to learn. I used to be very paranoid about that, Tom. But you know what? 
there's enough water out there. There's enough spots out there. And if he's on that spot, that's going to make my day that day. And I can't fish it. You know what? It's okay. I'm going to go out there tomorrow or the day after. So I've changed my whole perspective on that paranoid of having someone fishing a spot that I, I showed or that they've seen me on. But it happens all the time, as you mm-hmm. know. Has you know? Have you ever uh, had something happen like where you learned something from one of these scientists um, or from one of the telemetry studies or from something to where it is just an absolute mind changer of the way that you thought things happen and the way that they're actually happening? And you know, and I, I ask that because Tom, Tom. with with the with the technology of drones too, like we throw up a drone to do the filming of the show, and it's like there was a fish there the whole time. Like you know, I go back and look at at the footage of of pushing down a shoreline where we never saw a fish, but sixty feet in front, just out of sight. There was a school of bonefish going at the same speed we were the whole time, and we never saw anything and thought, just not a good day today. Like, it's just but not here. what were the chances that those fish knew you were there? 100%. And, and they were just staying in that buffer zone. They know, they, I mean, that's what I'm saying. It's 100%. Where before I saw that with my own eyes and looking at it, I'm like, well, they're just not here today. Like, and you're talking about breaking the code. It's like- Okay, so you have you have this this idea, this mindset, this idea that they're not here today. But then you see with your own eyes, no, they were there today. And you're you were just being too loud or they yeah. just weren't going to tolerate your presence yeah, you today. Yeah. Yeah. Or some you got to change your approach because they were there and you didn't see them. Like, and I just wonder if you had had uh, well, I any know, kind I, of a- if I, right, right. If I had any kind of of enlightenment yeah. with the studies, um, wow, that's that's you know, I have, not that I can sit down and say for sure, you know, other than not really, Tom, not yeah. really. I'm not. Well, I don't think things that thorough. I'm kind of real simple person. My mind is. Very small. I'm not the sharpest <laughs> knife in a drawer. But, you know, I really haven't sat down and said, well, what did I learn from the science? I'll tell you one thing. They used to say, and I used to say there's no way. Doing the census, there was 40, 50 boats up and down from Biscayne Bay all the way down to Key West when they do the census. And they'd pull and they'd kind of try to average the distance that they pulled with the amount of fish seen. So Jerry would speculate after the bell curve, after looking at the bell curve, after years of doing it, they came up with the consensus that there was 350,000 bonefish from Biscayne Bay all the way down to Key West. Hmm. You know, to me, that sounded like that wasn't a whole lot of fish. I don't know what... Your thoughts are on that? I don't know. I mean, 350,000. I mean, I'd like to see that many fish in a day. That'd be pretty awesome. But uh, <laughs> I mean, when you, when, you, when you see things like when you fly over to the Bahamas and you fly over the Florida Keys, it's not the same thing. You see these muds that are miles in the Bahamas, long. Oh, yeah. Yeah. Oh, yeah. And, and 
and it's not mullet, it's bonefish. And there are, you know, thousands and thousands of them in there. And you go, you know, on a flat over there, like right outside of Bimini, right? When you're fishing with Bimini, I was over there fishing with Fred and, uh, he's like, we're going in the back where the muds are and they're going to, you know, you, you pull in and there's a giant mud and he likes to pull around the outside and he sees these big fish kind of cruising in and out of the mud and you can sight cast them in there. And of course, if, if you're not a good fisherman, you can just throw it right in the mud and start catching fish. Right. But you're trying to I don't to really see that that much in the lower keys where right. there are, I mean, maybe you might come across it a time or two where there's, there's, there's big mud or whatever, or when you're flying over in an airplane, you kind of look it's down. It's not on a daily basis yeah. like they have. So in the I, I, I would think that there are definitely more, way more fish, in my opinion, in the Bahamas because of those kind of things that you can clearly see that I don't see here. So I would think that the number would be far less than what's in the Bahamas, and I have no idea. I would think that the Bahamas numbers would be millions, and maybe, maybe ours. I don't know. Is three hundred fifty thousand seems low? You know, I guess yeah, it seems low. And as a fishing guide, I guess I was partial to wanting there to be more fish than three hundred fifty thousand. Mm. But that, you know, does, you, you know, so I would say there's no way, Jerry, there's got to be more. And who's to say, but what happens is that since he did it for about 10 years or seven years, then the numbers get more accurate. Mm. You, you see, because yeah, yeah. I would say, well, who's to say that there's not 150,000 fish in Hawk's channel right now? Right, right. You know? Sure. I mean, exactly. I mean, and you're you're making a fish count by what people can see with their eyes, um, you know. So yeah. I, I mean, don't know. just like I'm saying, I, we're with a drone. I'm looking, and I can see that we pulled right through an area. No one saw a single fish standing on coolers, looking as hard as you can possibly look. No one saw a single fish. But when you look at the drone afterwards, there were forty fish right in front of you. That's crazy. That you that's never crazy. saw. Yeah, and yep. you know. You can do it and, you know, you can do the same kind of thing in, um, in Flamingo or whatever. You don't, you don't see any redfish and you're pulling along and one blows out and you never saw it. Like it's buried in the grass. Mm -hmm. And unless you run over the thing, you're not going to see it. Right. You can be right. right next to it or maybe you pull a little bit and then you put your push pull a little bit out because you're going to make a turn and you put it on top of a fish. And or close enough to where one blows out. Mm -hmm. Well, the boat just went right past that fish yep. and it didn't blow out until you bothered it with your push pole. Right. So how many more could you have could possibly be sitting seen? there on the bottom? Right. right. So snake and I, I don't know that. Yep. I don't know that. I mean, I'm no scientist, but that seems like the best way, I guess, to see how many are out there. But you're relying on a lot of different people with a lot of different skills, with a lot of different boats with a lot of different depths of water with, yeah, and, and, right. and then, so, you know, so is there it, any exaggeration or, oh, there's one and another and another. Well, maybe was, was there, I don't, I don't know. Like, you know, yeah, you, it's, you, hard. You know it's hard you, to gauge. You, you, it's you hard bring to a, gauge. you bring a client out there and you're like, okay, there's a big school of fish coming at us. Big school, a huge school coming at it. Get ready, get ready, get ready. 11 o'clock. They're coming. They're coming. There's a huge school. There must be 20 fish in there. And they get a little closer and you're like, well, there's four fish, you know, or whatever. And it's like, it's not 20, <laughs> yeah, but you're excited. Yeah, I understand. But I've also seen it go the other way where there's really 50 sure. fish. And the guy says, well, I only saw, I said, did you see them? He says, yeah. well, I only saw three. 
Right. He was looking at the very front or the very back and didn't miss the middle. But I'm saying that, you know, with a situation like that, I yeah, mean, how we, many, we tend to exaggerate. Right. We you tend could to exaggerate, exaggerate, but right, or, right. or under exaggerate. Like, so you're, you're, you're counting fish by, by what people are seeing with their eyes. Mm-hmm. I don't know. I would think that there's inherently some, some, and I'm sure that he knows that. Like, there's inherently going to be flaws in that. Like, there, people are going to not see things that they should have, and people are going to see more than whatever. But I don't know. 350,000 sounds sounds low, but when I hear 350,000, that starts to make catch and release be um, all the more important. Um, in 2010, we lost a ton of fish. We had that freeze, Tom. With we the had, freeze. Uh, what did it we do had, to we Biscayne had, Bay? We had, we had a thermal drop here of... Uh, 57 degrees, probably for about 11 or 12 days, if I'm not mistaken. I think if I've got, if I remember correctly, that year, it was pretty hot in December. Uh, The permit fishing, which is unusual, was pretty good for us here in the Bay Mm -hmm. in December. But anyway, we did lose a lot of fish uh, from the mainland side, Tom. You know, when I say the mainland side, I mean from like Coconut Grove all the way down to Card Sound. Okay. On the west side of the bay those fish kind of tended to go into the marinas and you know it's, they didn't look for the exit mm, they didn't okay they, what they did they went into the marinas they went into the channels and they tried to take shelter right. in those places and it probably had worked before on milder cold fronts exactly yeah but we're talking about subtropical or tropical fish I guess you can call them subtropical, sure. right? Yeah. And bonefish cannot tolerate a thermal drop of that many days. So we lost a large portion of the fish on the west side, and we lost some from the east side because I know because I would run around and see them. But the fish on the east side of the bay are close to the Gulf Stream. They're close to Hawks Channel. They're close, So they were able to run out. The same mm. thing happened in Key Largo. Or on the inside Isla Morada, especially Key Largo, mm-hmm. there was no way for them to get out because there's nothing close to there. There's right. no no channels leading out. So we did lose a good number, and uh, there was a decline in the aggregation. And um, I think it's bouncing back. I really do. do. I know you guys are seeing in Key West, they're seeing a bunch of smaller fish. It's the best I've ever seen it. That's what I've heard. Now- you know that they've done studies uh, with models uh, off the coast of Cuba, and they say that the umbilical cord is in Cuba. Hmm. I don't know if, if 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 you've talked to Aaron Adams no, or the guys. I don't, know, the, I don't know about the Cuba. Put, they've put models out in Cuba, and when the Gulf Stream catches those models, it comes up the coast. And it ends up in Key West Marathon. So, so what do you mean by models? Like a computer well, model or like no, they, dropping well, stuff in the dropping water? Dropping stuff okay. in the water. Yeah, like little simula- vials or to, whatever. To simulate, to okay. simulate bonefish before their larval gotcha. stages. Gotcha. So speculation is that it starts in Cuba and the chain continues down like to Key West. You guys get those fish. Those fish grow there. They go offshore. They spawn. Their spawn goes north a little bit into Big Pine or Marathon. Those fish grow up there, go offshore, spawn. So there's it's a cycle. Yeah. You, you see what I'm saying? Yeah. So so the fish from Isla Mirada that may go out in Isla Mirada and spawn may end up out here in Elliott Key. Hmm. 
Hmm. The yeah, that's interesting. When I first started guiding in, in Key West, very few bonefish. Very, very but there, few. But there bonefish. was a lot of netting going on in Cuba yeah, and stuff like that. You're right. And they, there was netting going on in, in Key West. There was like netting we going would, on. Oh, yeah. We'd see them in the behind. We'd go out to the Marquesas and there'd be boats out there and they would be guys wading in the water and they'd be netting. And, you know, there was very little law enforcement back then. Very little. I mean, I would, you know, it was really close to the drug days, which you remember. So mm-hmm. the law enforcement was. Yeah, not were, about the emphasis, fishing. The emphasis was, was about not drugs. On fishing. Right, like you would right. see, a, if you saw a plane fly low, here comes a boat coming to check out and see what's going on. Mm-hmm. But I don't know if I ever got stopped for uh, "Are you within your limit?" kind of thing. If I ever was stopped, it was open up that hatch and let me see if there's some cocaine in there or right, something. Right. Yeah, like, it wasn't fishing. The, right. It wasn't the fishing thing. Right, the but they were thing. netting there, and I didn't really think about that as being a factor. But that absolutely could have been a factor. But you would still think that if there were as many bonefish as there are now in Key West, that you'd have seen some. I mean, but it was it was there just really weren't that many there. Now, when you moved to Jewfish Basin, Big Pine, all that area, all the way up, there were bones. Lot, right. Lots up of them. The and they were big. And the snipes and, and stuff like that. And they were very, like very large fish. It was very difficult to catch one under eight pounds. Really? And then, the, then that 2010 thing happened. And um, it's really changed dramatically. And there are, I mean, the bone fishing in Key West, not just like the Key West, Sugarloaf to Key West area, which is kind of where I always found them. No, no, you're talking even west of Key West. West of Key West. Right. It's right. really good. And it's wonderful to see because- That is great. There That's are, great to hear. You know, not only has this freeze thing, you know, rebounded, but now there are fish where there weren't fish before. Like- on these beautiful flats where you think, man, if this was in Biscayne Bay, it would be loaded. If this was Isla Mirada, this flat would be loaded. And there are, there were none. There were permit, you know, but no, no bonefish. Right. And uh, now they're bonefish. And it's, it's really cool to see. But I just kind of wondered what your thoughts about um, that freeze in, in your area. Because I don't yeah, think I ever talked it, to anybody. But, that, but it's bouncing back. It's yeah. bouncing back. Now, there's, there's also a lot of other issues, which are environmental, which are mortality rate, us fishing them. So there's a combination of things that will impact the aggregation and has impacted the <laughs> aggregation. Um, but uh, I'm hoping that uh, that it you know stays strong or bounces back and that those fish you guys are seeing in Key West, that that theory that Bonefish Tarpon ha- Trust has is applicable and that we start seeing the numbers that we used to see up here in the past. Yeah. Well, yeah. when the netting goes away, it seems like seems like that's an entirely good possibility. Yeah. 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 So, uh, what what do you like doing outside of fishing? Fishing? <laughs> <laughs> no, I don't know. I've been the last couple of years. You know, I love steelhead fishing. Do you? Uh, yeah, I've done. Uh, I haven't done it here in the last two years, but uh, within the last eleven years, I've gone up. Uh, Eight years, I've gone up to the Skeena River wow. and, and do the steelhead up there. That's a lot of fun. I've got uh, friends that do that, and they take me up like there. You a, know, client, a client, a client. Yeah, yeah deal. That's- uh, the first year, I did it single hand, and then I did it with a spay rod. I've done it the spay rod. The uh, 
you know, the following five years. But that's a lot of fun on the ski knob. What the time of the year room. do you do that usually? Usually, usually do that in, I've gone as early as June and as late as September. So it depends on, through the ski knob, the steelhead are usually there. You're going to catch steel. But I've also done, you know, you're fishing on the ski and everything comes through the ski So you can catch a sockeye during a certain time of year. You can catch a king. You can catch a silver. You can catch a chum. So I've caught them all. And it's pretty neat. You know, I never used to think much of freshwater fish. Mm-hmm. But I tell you what, you hook a steelhead in fast water, you got your hands full, dude. Absolutely. And even a lot of the salmon, like if you go to um, if you go to uh, Alaska and you're fishing for even just a sockeye salmon, you get that close to the ocean. Mm, that's right. bright. That's right. Yep. And that yep. thing is like a bonefish. Yep. You know, that's right. that, that is that's really, right. really cool. And of course, you can catch other ones that, that aren't as good of fighters. But I've always loved that. I mean, that's where my roots are is I started guiding trout fishing out west before i came to the keys to, to start guiding so I, i've always had a great appreciation for that but the steelheading is one type of fishing that i don't really know that much about but one of the things that's the most attractive about it is the places that you the location go. that's right because some of the most right. beautiful places in earth are are steelhead rivers and when you say that you're going between june and september describe what it's like to uh leave miami and end well, up, you up know, there. You know how hot it is here in late August and sweltering, and, uh, or or late July into August. So it's pretty neat. It's pretty neat going up there. And you know, I've been there when it's been pretty hot, but I've also been there on those dreary, rainy, misty days, and it's cold, and you're in your waders and you're peeing in your pants. That's a lot of fun, man. That's really neat. You know, that's well, it's really a neat. lot different than Miami. I'll tell you that. Um, but just you know, I, I always like like going from one extreme to the other and that is you know how could you go to more extremes i mean i guess you could go to you know switzerland or somewhere but uh from the flat hot salt water that's right to going to, to those the mountains rivers where and the, the reason rivers. i say peeing in your pants is because when you're sitting there with those waders and you get that pressure and stuff i mean at my age, I got to run and pee right away, dude. I can get in the water for 10, 15 minutes. I got to run and pee. You know, my prostate ain't what it used to be, dude. Anyway, you go ahead and ask me, you know, Tom, I, I'm, I, I have my kids. I love spending time with my kids, with my wife. Uh, I, I have a grandchild today. You do? Uh, yeah, he's eight years old. And then uh, my daughter's pregnant again. I have a five-year-old uh, step-grandson. Um, but family time is very important to me. As a matter of fact, we bought a little place uh, in Key Largo, right downtown Key Largo, right in front of Rodriguez Key, oh, about six years ago. And we go over there on weekends. Now, you know, my wife, uh, Angie, is never in a hurry for anything. And, you know, during the season, I'm working Monday through Friday, full days. And then Saturdays, when it's going off, from January till about third week or second week of July, I'm trying to do only half days on Saturdays. So I'll stay up here and fish half day Saturday, and then I'll run over and meet with them in the Keys, and I'm there afternoon, Saturday afternoon through Sunday, and then drive back. But uh, Angie is never in a hurry for anything. (laughs) But I'll tell you what, on Fridays, when Angie gets home from work, her bags are packed, she grabs her packs, 
her, 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 her bags. And she says, see ya, I'm out of here. She runs out the door to the keys. She <laughs> loves it. She just, you know, Angie's a paralegal. So she works a nine to five and or nine to six or seven 30 to five 30 or whatever. But, uh, I've never seen her hurry up or get out of the house or boogie the way she does when she's headed down to the keys. And that fulfills me. I yeah. love to see my wife enjoying that. And it's fun. We go over there, hang out by the sandbar. And by the time Saturday afternoon ro- rolls around, the last thing I want to do on Sunday is go fishing. Dude. Yeah. I want to chill out and hang out and sit by the pool and, you know, kick my feet up and do you, you have know, like a, a some type of boat down there or do you take your own I, I had I had a little flats boat over there I just sold it but a lot of times I'll trailer over there yeah. I'll trailer my, my boat over there and and we'll go to the sandbar and it's just it's a good old time yeah and I don't want to be fishing because I know that come Monday morning I'm going fishing again and I know that you know this that yeah we love the guiding and the guiding's fun but sometimes when you're doing it Every day, it kind of it, it catches up to you, dude. It catches it's, up to you. Yeah, it's it's not only physical, but it's also mentally mentally taxing because if you're if you're really into it, you want to do the best job that you possibly can. And so, even when the fishing is is at its best, and you probably, I'm sure that you experience the same thing. Like I would get more nervous about a trip when the weather was perfect than when the weather was horrible. Yep, because You're when the weather's tested. horrible, and you go, man, if you catch anything, you're a superstar. And when the weather's perfect, that's when it's like you're being tested. Boy, you're that's being your test. Yep, yep. And you know, like everybody's coming back to the dock. Even the guy that doesn't know what he's doing is coming back to the dock with a great story. Yep. And yep. today is the day, and you better. You know, and and what makes it even more stressful is that on a day like that, you have so many options. Like, yeah, it's going to be great over there, and it's going to be great over there, and it's going to be great over there. But we can't do them all. That's right. That's so right. we need to pick. Need to make and when the we right pick call. here, to make that right means call. we can't yep. go over here. Yep. Yep. But we could go in the middle and have the opportunity to maybe hit either one. But that's not the meat. Like right. that's kind of playing it safe. Yep. Well, and now that you say that, I would like to comment on this. Perfect day for me does not mean slicked out conditions. Mm. For many fly fishermen or people that sight fish or flats fish think that the best days are the days where it's slicked out. I don't like slick conditions, Tom. I like a little bit of a breeze. I like to be camouflaged a little bit. I like to, I don't know about you. I don't know if you like slick, calm conditions, but experience has taught me that if it's slick, the game's going to be much harder. Much harder, for sure. But there's a certain condition where it's blowing 9 to 12 miles an hour. There's a few clouds in the sky. It's not completely bright. The clouds give us a little camouflage as well. So, Perfect day sometimes has a little bit of a mix of a little bit of a breeze, just the right breeze, some cloud cover where you're going to lose some of the visibility for a little bit. But that camouflages us. Mm-hmm. Don't, don't you agree? Oh, I do. Absolutely. And, and you know, I love a slicked off day because, man, after it's been blowing real hard and you've been just 
getting your brains beat in. Yeah. It's yeah. really nice and it's always beautiful. But those are rarely the days where you catch the most fish. That's right. Rarely That's right. the days. That's right. And and then depending on the fish that you're fishing for, you know, I fish for permit a lot and I do not consider a slick calm day to be at all ideal for permit fishing. Whereas, you know, it's it's post cold front warming up uh quickly mm-hmm. like it's mm-hmm. uh the cooler weather's gone but the wind's still blowing it's blowing you know it's shifted from the north and now it's like a a, a southeasterly wind at 20 yep. okay now we're talking the water yep. temperature's gonna r- rise you know six eight ten degrees today because the sun's now out the permit are gonna be happening Yep. With a 20 mile and an hour Tom, wind, we're going to be able I've to got, get close. I've got a question for you. I've got a question. You're supposed to be questioning me. <laughs> now this is better. <laughs> is it? Is it? Is it depth and velocity of tide that you look for when you're permit fishing? Um, That's what I look for. I look for that bouncy water. Yeah. You know what I mean by yeah. that bounce in the sure. water? Yeah. Huh? Yeah. No, I know what you're talking about. And um, yeah, I would say... I would say that I, you know, there was a time in my permit fishing where um, I guess it, at the first I wasn't that great at finding them or wasn't that confident in it. So I was always looking for tailing fish. And, you know, in the places where I was fishing, you could find tailing fish easily. Mm-hmm. I mean, they were they were there, but they're way harder to fish for. And then later I kind of found that if they could do the same thing that they were doing and tail but be completely covered with the water. Yep. Yep. They were much easier to catch. And so I started fishing deeper and deeper and deeper water. And then I'm fishing water that's twice as deep as they can tail. Yep. And, yep. you know, it takes a little, little bit to figure out how to see them as well as you can see them, you know, in shallower water. But, but that was a big, that was a big thing for me to have the confidence to move out and know that I was going to, or think that I was going to see as many fish in the deeper water, but the catch rate went way up. Of course. Right. Of course, and so of course. that, that was, that was, I remember that being like a, a, a time of learning to where it's like, man, and, and, I have been pretty just, much all you did was fly fish. Well, for a lot, for a while, um, for the first, uh, few years of guiding, I didn't even own a spinning run. And then it wasn't until I started fishing in the Redbone tournaments that you started that, picking up. Yeah. Well, I got into the, the Redbone tournaments and I thought, well, I think it's going to be possible to do well in the Redbone tournaments with a fly rod. And that's because you get double points. Right. So right. I was like, well, we could just go out and, and catch half as many fish. Seems right. easy. And, and, and score, Un- and score yeah, much higher. Until you understand how good people like a combination of Tim Hoover and Jim Bocar, mm-hmm, mm-hmm. like you're not going to catch half as many fish as those guys right, with a right, fly rod. You're right. just not. And I mean, plus, those are like professional plus, plus people. Not only that, a lot of times if you get inclement weather, they can, they know where the fish, they know the lanes. You don't have to see the fish with bait to right. catch them. Oh, absolutely. And, yeah. and not that you're chumming or anything like that, but even on, even on days where you would consider it to be perfect for, for fly fishing, those guys are going to outfish you. Yep. They yep. are really good. Oh, they no. have been doing it for a really long time. And there are, you know, guides like a Mark Croca pair him with one of the best anglers on the planet. 
McAfee, like yeah, this guy like yeah, Tim McAfee yeah, yeah, and yeah. and Mark Croca, mm-hmm, those guys mm-hmm. don't miss. I know. So that. if they I get a that. shot, they're putting it in the boat, right, right? Right. Where you can take, I don't know, whoever you consider to be the best fly fisherman in the world, and pair him with whoever you consider to be the best fly guide in the world, and I, even on the best day, on the best cast, on the best presentation with the right fly, the fish sometimes doesn't eat it, mm-hmm, right? Mm-hmm. The fish. I mean, like Mark Croca told me this a long time ago. He's like, with bait, if you do it right, every fish should eat it. So if you didn't catch the fish, you didn't do it right. And I was like, okay. And I really liked that. I really liked that approach because then it was like, it should happen. Where with fly fishing, I don't think that you can say that. I don't think that you can say, if if you do it right, they should eat it. Because I've seen thousands of people do it or not thousands of people, thousands of casts land exactly where I'm telling the fit, you know, for permit fishing. And they go over to it just like they do when you throw a dead crab to them Mm -hmm. and they don't want that either. Yep. Right. And it's like, well, here's, here's where, and I'm sorry to interrupt you. A guide could have you cast, could tell you to strip and how you, he wants you to strip it. But a good angler brings that sixth sense as oh, well. Yeah. Right. Don't, don't you agree? Oh, 100%. They know when to stop it or maybe twitch 100%. it a little more or play that cat and mouse yeah, game. Yeah, and they're doing all of that in a, in a, in a reactionary time way faster than you could tell you could, them. Exactly. Right. Exactly. And so exactly. that's where you're not – if you have an angler that's not at that level, you're not competing with those guys. I, I mean, understand. you're just not. I like, understand. Because – and then there's the time when the guide looks at his watch or whatever, and the angler goes, there's one, and whips it in there and, and catches, catches one. Yep. And yep. and the guide had zero to do with it other right. than being I in the right place that. at the right I time. Love that. And I so love that. that's a fish on the board. Yep. But I got very um, interested in those tournaments. And, and on the first one, we did quite well with the fly rod, but didn't win. And then I'm watching and I'm reading these big boards and I'm seeing the guides that are consistently doing well. And then I started fishing with this uh, with this doctor from Fort Lauderdale, Cal Blumberg. I don't know if you know I him know or not, name. but he, I know the name. he's he's a wonderful man and a great fisherman. And he came to me to catch permit on fly. That's what he wanted to do. And that's I did that. I, that was what I like to do. So we start our relationship fly fishing for permit. He gets so into it that he wants to start the Dell Brown permit tournament. And he did and started that. And then he let other people run it for a while, but that was the dream. Like, let's do this. But along the way, he's like, you know, tomorrow I'm bringing crabs. And I'm like, whatever cat, whatever you want to do, man. Like to other people, I might at that time in my career, I might've said, no, it's going to be great for fly fishing. You book me for fly fishing. Let's go fly fishing. But I was open to it. And um, and it wasn't like I had never seen someone catch a permit on a crab or did that occasionally. But I had never seen somebody do it like that. And he comes with, you know, two dozen crabs, perf- everyone perfect. He has the right hooks. He has the right line. He has the right tackle. And every fish that we saw that day, he puts the crab perfectly in front of it and he and they eat it and we catch the fish. And a lot of fly fishermen will say, you know, I'd rather catch one on fly than 10 on bait. And on that day, I was like, well, 
shit, they've never caught 10 on bait because that was fun. That was super you know fun. What, Tom? That was I, so much yep, fun. Yep, and yep. I learned so much on that day about, I got to see 10 fish eat. Yep. And yep. I got to see 10 yep. fish be yep. fought. And I yep. got to see 10, Tom, 10 I've reactions. Al- I've always said that what makes what will make a good fly fisherman is a good bait fisherman. I'm 100% in agreement you, you with you. Know, and, and Tom, you know, my business is not all fly fishing. And I'm okay with that. I couldn't make a living just taking fly fishing guys out. Mm-hmm. I would lose a lot of days weather-wise. I'm at a point in my career, and even when I started, I would have cut a big piece of the pie off. I love fly fishing, mm-hmm. okay? But I bait fish a bunch, yeah. and I'm th- okay with it. I think it. you have to. I'm okay with to be able to fish. At least for me, that's my business here in Miami. It's not based on – you have a different – in the Keys, people go to the Keys mm-hmm. to fish. Mm-hmm. People really don't come to Miami to fish. Mm-hmm. It's a different client base. You guys have guys that go over there for five days, seven days, three days minimum. Yep. If I have a guy here for three days, that's a bunch. Yeah. So it's a different client base. And you know what? I'm okay with – Fishing bait. I and am I, too. And like you're saying, I've learned a lot about the species, fishing bait. Right. And you get to read them and you get to see what the takes are and what they do or what they don't do. Did he skim <laughs> Did he skim the crab on oh, the surface? Yeah. Uh, I mean, he did all kinds of stuff that I had never seen before. Like I had never seen somebody that was an expert spin fisherman that had spent more time practicing in the backyard and on the dock and, and on the boat with a spinning rod than most people practice with a fly rod. And fly fishermen are practicers, you know, they're out there. But Cal was, he took it to a whole different level. He wanted to be perfect with that spinning rod. And then he started fly fishing, right? And he was perfect with the spinning rod. He could do the splashless cast and he could cast beyond them and bring it to him. He could do, he could do everything. He was one of the, he was at the time, the very finest spin fisherman that I had ever seen. And coming from Tennessee where it's bass fishing, you know, I mean, I'd seen people with bait casters and, and some of those bass fishermen with bait casters are like wizards. Yes, they, they are. can zip yes, it in, oh, yeah. you know, and, and so I'd seen stuff like that, but you don't see the fish like like you do down here. And to see him do that, that it lit a fire in me and it happened in a time where I was having kids. And so I also needed to learn how to get my kids to catch fish. And it wasn't going to be go out there and sit on the cooler and watch me try to catch a tarpon for five hours with a fly rod. It was going to be, let's go up against the bushes and catch snappers. And so this, this started this it, whole it learning opened. process. Yeah, yeah, and yeah. then the bay boats came along and, and, and this, everything changed at that point, but I got really into fishing the bait. And now when I say I started out in Key West and I didn't own a f- spinning rod for a few years, well, that's also a very uh, short window in my life to where when I first went there and first started guiding, well, I didn't have any kids. I didn't have any bills. I didn't have a wife. Um, you know, I'm not uh, a weather day. Okay. Where fast forward to it, three kids, mortgage, that's right. boat payments. Yeah. You got two guys working we're, we're for going. you. We're You're, going. Yeah. We're going. Yeah, we're going. Yep. And and yep. it's a great day to catch barracudas on a spinning rod. So, and have you ever done it? 
Oh no! Well, I promise you're gonna like it. It's gonna be the best day of fishing you've ever had. We're gonna <laughs> we're gonna have this great day of fishing, and 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 it's a perfect day for that. And if we or we're gonna go look for what you, you know. What's me funny, for. Tom? A lot of times those crappy days come out being a lot better. Oh, the best. Yeah. yeah, yeah. But yeah. but it's also having a, a a client that's got an open mind enough. Mm-hmm. Now I've had this conversation yep. with a lot yep. of my fly guys. Yep. And I'm like, listen, I'm telling you, you've been you've been coming for like three or four years and you haven't caught the permit on fly. Let's change it up. Yeah. And so they're like, okay, I'm open to it. And you hand them the spinning rod and they make a cast that's so bad that you're like, you know what? You're just going to do better with a fly rod. Like, have you ever done that? Yeah. To where yeah. somebody I, oh, actually yeah. holds it upside down. Yep. Like they Absolutely. have, it's Absolutely. like, wait a minute, you've never held a spinning rod before and you're an expert fly fisherman, but you've never I've, even I've held a spinning talk. rod. I've had there that, are yeah. those people out there where mm-hmm. I, I, it didn't, when I first started guiding it, that wasn't the way the fly fisherman had made this progression. They started out maybe offshore then they went in inshore. They caught lots of bonefish and permit and tarpon, you know, lots of different ways. And then they decided, that's easy. I want to go and try something a little harder. And they start fly fishing. Those were the type of people that were the fly fishing clients, like probably yeah, in 1987 gonna, when you first started. Okay, so I'm going to talk about a little bit about that. But prior to that, what I like to do, Tom, I like to minimize expectations with people so that I can capitalize on results. How do you do that? The worst thing I can do is tell someone how good the fishing was yesterday. <laughs> that's what you, Lefty Cray always said. That's the fishing worst thing today I was do. so good that I thought it was yesterday. That's the, that's the worst thing I could do is tell someone how right. good it was. So I try to keep a low key with that. But anyway, you know, I think back then when you started and I started or whatever, that was kind of the dot-com era. That was the term yuppie mm-hmm. came. Yeah, yeah. yeah. There was a lot of stock market money. Fly fishing became trendy. The movie A River Runs Through It came out. <laughs> I talked about that a lot on this podcast and, because that and, came out when and, I was a trout guide. Okay. And a lot of people started fly fishing. A, a and Because prior to that, fly fishing really didn't have a whole lot of allure. Right? Mm-hmm. And Absolutely. I'm sorry I'm interrupting no, 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 no. you, dude. No, no, I'm going. I'm, I'm 100% with you. Go so, for it. So the fly fishing industry really took off. And I'm trying to think what year that movie. I would assume that it was around 93, 94. Mm-hmm. Does that sound yeah. about right? Yeah, that's about right. And the fly fishing just kind of took off. It climaxed. And then it kind of started dropping. You know? But. I know that I hit it right. I think it was a good time in my starting the career like that. I had been around for a few years and it catapulted me to another level where I was able to make this. Because as you know, guiding, it's not an easy career, dude. And there's a lot of ups and downs. I remember 9-11. I remember different Mm, situations that the guiding... The first thing that people do is stop spending that money on fishing or things that bring them, what's the word I'm looking for? 
you know, the uh, uh, expendable cash. Yeah. Uh, expendable. Uh, expend- yeah. Right. Yeah. And recreational and income recre- or, yeah, or that's vacations and stuff but, like that. But, but I think I hit it right. But uh, I don't know where I was going with that. Just thought I'd throw that well, in the there. fly fishing, you know, it's not, it doesn't have to be the only way. And I love fly fishing. You love fly fishing. But there's also, you know, there's great things about fishing for all of these fish with bait. I mean, watching a giant Isla Morada bonefish eat a shrimp that's been perfectly placed in front of it mm-hmm. is pretty mm-hmm. damn cool. Or, or me having some, and I have this a lot, Tom, someone who really never has fished. And unfortunately, sometimes I have to what we call booger fish yeah. under of inclement course. weather. Right. Sit there and put baits out. Right. And just soak bait. But if you catch this person that's never caught a bonefish before, or maybe never even caught a saltwater fish, and you catch a fish, to me, that's fulfilling. Right. Even though he caught it on a shrimp, even though he never saw it, I'm still doing what I love to do, and I'm teaching someone how to catch a fish. Right. Yeah. I don't think, you know, I think uh, so many people, myself included, and you're, you, right now with what you just said are like trying to justify the fact that you're bait fishing, which I don't think there's any I reason get, to. Yeah. I find Honestly, myself trying I, to I really justify. don't think there's any reason to though, Tom, because I, bait fishing is awesome. And if it wasn't for bait fishing, you're not going to run a 300 day, that's you correct. know, that's 300 correct. day a year. And at the end of the day, business. I have mortgage payments, car payments, Got a little place in the keys, man. I never thought I could have yeah. that, dude. You That's know? awesome. That's awesome. But, you know, I don't think that you should, uh, you know, try to justify the bait fishing. I think you're good at it. Um, it's part of what we do. It'd yes. be like it'd be like an offshore guy saying, you know, I really don't want to throw the net. I, you know, I mean, sometimes we have to throw the net, you know. It's like. Well, yeah, like that's but that's Tom, part of it. Oh, that's like, right. That's, that's it. right. Well, if in, in the grand scheme of things, if you really think about the fishing industry, Tom, the whole fishing industry, about seventy percent. I don't know what the numbers are. You probably know better than I do. Is the bass circuit? Mm, yeah, for sure. Out of that seventy percent, after that seventy percent, about twenty two, twenty three percent. Is the salt water? I don't know how much the where the break is, but the fly fishing—it's a very small piece of the pie, dude. Yeah, it's a very small piece of the pie. But the people that that do it are very avid, and so the draw for a fishing guide towards the fly fishing is that typically the caliber of angler that is going to get off your boat and book those same days again next year is likely to be the fly fisherman, the guy that that. You're right. He travels right. all can, around the world. Yep. He brings your lunch. He tips you well. At Christmas, it's there's a, a Christmas a card a di- that comes right. to your diff- to your wife. Like, yeah. thank you for having me to dinner. When they're in town, they take you to dinner. Like it, you are catered to like a rock star a lot of times. Now, not to say that a, an angler like Cal Blumberg, who really opened my eyes to spin fishing, that's how he treated his guides as well. You know, I mean, it's like. It doesn't matter the tool. In my opinion, I mean, what I like the most is thinking of all a bait caster, a fly rod, a spinning rod, an offshore rod. They're all tools. Yep. And if you want to be a good fisherman, you need to know how to use all of them. We're going back to master And you also need to know 
uh, yeah, the master angler thing. I think we've lost that. And I think that, you know, to be a really great angler, to consider yourself a great angler, you need to know the offshore side and you need to know the inshore side and not just the dolphin and sailfish. What about the swordfish and the deep dropping? Can you, could you do that? Could you, are you as comfortable out there as you are polling you know, in, in 10 inches of water and finding bonefish. Could you then go into freshwater and, and catch, catch a steelhead, or, or, catch, or catch bass, a bass. Yep. catch yep. all yep. of that? And and that's what I think is, is the most exciting about fishing is that to do all of those things. Now, obviously today it's much easier. There's guides in every one of those areas. So you don't rarely have to do it by yourself. You can book people and gain tremendous i mean how much do you learn when you go steelheading with people that steelhead all the time you're going to learn very very quickly yes sir right and then the next week you could be up in alaska salmon fishing and then you could be down in mexico permit fishing and you could be doing all of these things but the the thing that i've always liked the most about fishing is that it really would take a lifetime to be a true master angler to be able to catch bass on all types of tackle to catch bonefish on all types of tackle, permit, sailfish, swordfish, whatever, all of these things on all different kinds of tackle in all different places in the world. That's a lifetime. Yes, it is. And it's a yes, lifetime it of learning. Yes, it is. And Tom. you know what, Tom? All I want, I just want to have fun, man. <laughs> there you, you know, go. No matter how I do it, as long as I'm having fun, it's good. You know, and I've been seriously thinking about taking up golf here sometime. <laughs> well, <laughs> there you go. I hear there's a lot to learn about golf, man. That's another you know? lifetime. Right. And when we close ourselves up and stop wanting to learn or stop wanting to take that next step to learn something or to kind of, you know, we're cutting ourselves short. So uh, I want to keep fishing, keep learning. And I may take up golf. I hear my buddies are having a good time golfing, man. I'm Dude, sorry to throw this in there. That's but- awesome. No, no, I don't think that there could be a possible way that we could end this better than you just wanting to have fun and that you're going to be you're going to be golfing. So I can only imagine that that uh, as the days as the days get shorter on the water, the golf days get longer. But uh, you know, you've made a hell of a career. You've made a great um, reputation for yourself. I'm I'm all the way at the other end of the Florida Keys, and I've heard about you ever since I started. So same um, here, Tom. Same here. It's an honor. I'm really honored for you to have have me on here, and I uh, I wish you nothing but the well, best thanks. for you. I mean, and that's your really family, what this brother. podcast is about. Is about learning. This is another opportunity to learn. I mean, when is when is it that We've been going for an hour and 28 minutes. When is it that you and I would be able to sit down and exchange fishing stories without the cell phone ringing, without anything else? It, it just doesn't happen much. And that's what I've liked the most about this project. And it started as a project and now it's turned into something else. But, um, you know, I've been able to sit down with, with people like you, people like Bouncer Smith, that, you know, these people I'd heard about for so long and I'd never met them. So it's been a it's been a real pleasure for me, and uh, I wish you the very very best. And if I can ever help you do anything, thank you, brother. I'm all I, about I commend it, man. you. I commend you on everything you've done in your life. Uh, <laughs> I I admire you, brother. I, okay. I thank I thank you very much. That means a lot coming from you. Thank all you, right. Bro. All the best. Uh, tell us how we can get in touch with you. Follow you. Somebody uh, can well, book you. You know, I'm CaptainJoeGonzalez.com. Uh, Simple as that. Or okay. they can always call me at 305-798-0841. I like talking. So talking on the phone 
works for me still. You know, used to be where it was magazines and stuff like that, but now it's the internet and I'm on there. I'm on Instagram, but it's all good. If you want to find me, you can find me. All right. Give him a call. He'll talk your ear off. All right. Thanks, Joe. <laughs> Thank you, brother. See you. <laughs> to go with like just full-blown redneck on these fish. This is like high-tech cane pole fishing right here. From the white sandy beaches to the crystal blue waters, enjoy the best fishing Panama City Beach has to offer during Chasing the Sun, Sundays at 9.30 a.m. Eastern on Waypoint TV, the destination for outdoor entertainment. In wild country, rules were not created by man. Don't miss wild country, Wednesdays from 7 to 11 p.m. Eastern. Presented by Primos. Speak the language. Waypoint TV, the destination for outdoor entertainment.